Okay, I would like to, to begin by thanking uh, you, Professor Rayner and Professor Richards, uh, very much for inviting me. I'm uh, delighted to be here and present at this uh, seminar series. And I'm also very happy that you are convening this seminar series at this point in time, which I think is uh, about a very timely and interesting topic. Uh, uh, I would like to begin with uh, just a few words about my background. Uh, I'm a political scientist, uh, and I'm, as you mentioned, I'm working at the Fritjof Nansen Institute in Norway, which is an independent research foundation that specializes in international environmental politics, uh, resource management politics, and uh, energy politics. Uh, and as mentioned, my work has mainly been about the certification of forest and fisheries, but I also try to keep track on what's going on in other sectors, and I think also the comparative perspective here is very interesting uh, to see what is, uh, how do these schemes work and evolve in sectors other than forestry and fisheries. And I also, uh, I would like to, to mention that I noticed that interesting, interest in this issue is really increasing. Uh, for example, I was uh, very recently interviewed for about an hour from a reporter in science who wanted to know about the effectiveness of fisheries certification. And uh, he just, he just uh, published uh, this article in science, which is called Behind the Eco-Label, a debate over Antarctic toothfish. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't quote me, but still, <laughs> it was interesting to be interviewed by a guy from science. And also, uh, there's been articles in the Times here in the UK, uh, recently in the New York Times, uh, and other papers. So, uh, so really, I think that uh, this is a very timely and a very interesting topic to explore further. In the flyer advertising this seminar series, some key questions about emerging certification programs are addressed. Why and how do they proliferate? What are their impacts? What can be learned by comparing certification programs? Can they really lead to a fairer and more sustainable world? I do not pretend to have the answers to these questions, of course, but I hope that my presentation today can sort of engage your thinking about these issues and, and hopefully engage a discussion. So I will try to present you with some ideas, uh, some material and some findings that uh, that I hope will be of interest to a further discussion of these topics. And as Steve mentioned, certification is certainly not a new phenomenon. It has been around for a long time. But over the past two decades or so, uh, I think we can say that a new type of sustainability certification scheme uh, has emerged and become a particularly vibrant source of non-state governance. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as the privatization of governance in the literature. And these schemes have been launched in many sectors, ranging from forest and fisheries to ecotourism and fair trade initiatives. Uh, they typically establish environmental performance standards and, fair, uh, and standards for socially responsible production. They also go beyond voluntary codes of conduct and self-regulatory schemes by requiring independent verification of compliance. And they also constitute governing arenas in which a range of stakeholders interact and agree upon rules and governance mechanisms. Producers participate on a voluntary basis in these schemes. Because they are created and governed by non-state actors, there's of course no use of legal coercion to make producers uh, comply with the rules. But instead, we see that activists and NGOs use a range of tactics to try to persuade 
or force uh, producers to participate by way of by way of introducing both sticks and carrots. So coercion is definitely part of the picture, but it's not, it doesn't come from states, it comes from non-state actors. I would just like to, because uh, a lot of my examples today will, will draw on my work on forest and fishery certification, and I thought that it might be helpful to, to just introduce uh, two of the schemes that I have looked at in particular. Uh, one is the Forest Stewardship Council, which, which was created in 1993 by the WWF and a broad coalition of stakeholders and some uh, companies. Uh, the FSC developed principles and criteria for environmental, social and economic issues in forestry. It is a membership organization uh, which has uh, a general assembly consisting of three chambers, a social chamber and an economic chamber and an environmental chamber. An ultimate rulemaking authority rests with the members in the General Assembly. Uh, it's also important to note that the FSC is made up of a number of national initiatives which are members of the schemes. And national initiatives are used to elaborate on principles and criteria to adapt them to a local or a national context. The Marine Stewardship Council was created in 1997 by the WWF and Unilever, uh, and it has been independent from its founders since uh, 1998. So it emerged from a much more narrow uh, starting point. Uh, instead of a broad coalition of partners, it emerged from two partners that decided to create a fisheries certification scheme, one NGO and one business partner. And it's also important to notice the differences between the organizational structure of MSC and FSC. The MSC, uh, in the MSC, the Board of Trustees is the highest rulemaking authority. Uh, the Stakeholder Council, which is sort of the members of the scheme, has only an advisory role. And the principles and criteria of the MSC address only environmental issues and not social issues. So the MSC is sort of a bit narrower point of departure than uh, FSC has. So with this, I would just like to show you the plan of my presentation today. First, I will examine what I see as some of the key research questions related to the study of certification. And secondly, I will review the key features of certification programs, how they gain rulemaking authority and how they spread across sectors. Third, I will examine how we can determine the effectiveness of certification. Fourth, I will examine the link between program design and effectiveness. And if time allows, I will give you also a practical example from the issue of forest or the case of forest certification of how we can uh, measure or try to determine uh, effectiveness in, in a concrete example. And then I will close by reviewing some challenges uh, that I see are important in addressing in future research. So turning, beginning first with the research questions, I think it is useful to give you an overview of what I regard as some of, some of the key research questions and challenges with regard to certification. Uh, I think it's that scholars have focused on examining questions related to three main themes, the emergence, the design, and the effectiveness of certification schemes. So beginning with emergence, the first set of questions concern emergence. Why did a number of certification schemes emerge over the past two decades within and across sectors? How did they evolve? 
How did environmental NGOs, producers, consumers and states influence these programs? And are the spread of certification programs driven primarily by consumer demand or by producers hoping to extract a price premium or to gain larger market access? Uh, there are a number of case studies of the emergence of certification in specific sectors such as forestry and other sectors. But there are few comparative studies of the emergence of certification across sectors. So I think there is need for comparative studies that examines why a number of certification programs in various sectors emerge at roughly the same time. Scholars have begun to examine and explain the conditions that help to establish these programs, but more research is needed. A related research theme is the design of certification programs. Non-state certification programs constitute governing arenas that assemble various stakeholders and regulate their interactions. They also provide opportunities for learning and the mutual adaptation of behavior. In referring to an institution as a governing arena, we are interested in the access of, of actors to decision-making processes, their decision-making rights and their influence on decision-making outcomes. Governing arenas must have mechanisms such as decision rules and procedures for aggregating preferences into collective decisions. And key research questions include how did certification programs emerge? I mean, how did the program design, specific program designs emerge? What explains the variation in program design within and across sectors? And has one particular design or model eventually emerged as the dominant and appropriate certification model? Uh, yeah. Uh, for example, just to give you an example, a straightforward example of how sort of the constitutive rules of a certification program might influence the regulative rules, that is the standards being produced, is this one. Uh, if we have a certification scheme with industry domination in standard-setting bodies and in the membership, we can expect that uh, decision-making processes will result in industry-friendly standards. By contrast, if there is a scheme with environmental NGO domination, we can expect more stricter environmental standards. In this arena, we are also interested in how non-state actors organize rulemaking and governance to enhance authority and accountability. The creation of new certification programs can be seen as civil society efforts to create accountability mechanisms beyond the nation state. Because these programs could be more effective in holding producers to account than could traditional government regulations. To conclude this discussion, we know a great deal about how individual certification programs organize rulemaking and governance. But we have limited knowledge about what explains variation in program design and how organizational ideas travel or spread across sectors. Again, I think that comparative studies of certification programs are needed to examine the dynamics of program interactions. And then the third team, or the third uh, set of research questions, are related to effectiveness. There are at least three interesting questions related to program effectiveness, as I see it. First, what is the effectiveness of certification programs in resolving or ameliorating the problems that motivated their establishment? Second, how can you explain variation in the effectiveness of programs? And third, what are the broader consequences of certification programs, including 
unintended or unplanned effects. I will return to these questions, but before doing that, I think it's useful to review some of the key features of certification programs. Social and environmental certification programs generally comprise these following five features as I see it. First, they have standards for regulating the social and or environmental impact of production processes. And yet the stringency and scope of these standards vary across programs. Some programs have relatively stringent standards for regulating both the social and environmental impact of production within a sector or industry. Other programs have flexible and discretionary standards for regulating only specific aspects of the production process. The size and type of target products, target groups for the standards also varies. Some programs seem to seek to approve only the social and environmental frontrunners within an industry, whereas other programs seek to uh, seek industry-wide adoption of standards. And I think we have examples of both these types of uh, standards in, the, in this seminar series. For example, with the uh, conflict diamonds, which you will have a presentation on later, uh, I think it's fair to say that industry-wide adoption of standards is the goal for, goal for these standards. The goal is, of course, to eliminate uh, the trading of conflict diamonds. Uh, but within, with the environmental certification schemes, such as uh, the FSC, there were discussions about whether the program should only certify the most environmental friendly companies or if it should have a bit more flexible standards to attract more companies. Uh, also, we see that in some industries or sectors, it is necessary to, to certify a large number of producers in order to supply the big volumes needed for the industry. For example, a paper company that wants to use FSE certified paper or wants to use publish FSC certified books, uh, needs uh, very big volumes of paper to be able to supply books with the FSC logo, logo on it. Second, uh, these schemes have mechanisms to verify compliance with the standards and create consequences for non-compliance. Verification of compliance usually involves a certification procedure in which auditors assess whether or not producers meet the standards. Producers that, that passed the inspection of on-the-ground practices are awarded a certificate attesting to compliance. And if producers fail to correct serious breaches of the standards, they risk losing their certificate. But again, the scope of the auditing process and the consequences for failing to comply varies among programs. Third, these programs have rules for accreditation of third-party certification bodies, which are called the certifiers. Initially, accreditation of certifiers was often conducted within certification programs, but in many cases it, it has become outsourced to independent accreditation organizations, which accredit certifiers in accordance with the requirements established by the certification program. A fourth feature is that they have governance bodies and rules for regulating membership in the program, decision-making, standard-setting activities, complaints, and dispute resolution. Membership rules and governance structures vary by program. Some have membership rules, membership and voting rules that are favorable to industry and business interests. 
whereas others have rules that balance decision-making powers among environmental, social, and economic interests. As I mentioned, there's a significant difference between the FSC and the MSC in the mem membership rules of the two programs. And in forestry, we also see that the FSC, which balance, which is a sort of multi-stakeholder scheme, which balance social, environmental, and economic interest, uh, has been challenged by industry or business-dominated certification schemes, which are created by forest owners. And finally, uh, these schemes have tracking requirements for following products originating from approved operations through to the end consumer, as well as logos or labels that can be used on the products. Certification often in, uh, involves two, certifications, two cert certificates. For example, in forest certification, you have a forest management certificate attesting to sustainable forest practices at the forest management unit. And you have a chain of custody certificate uh, which means certifying the path a product takes from its point of production through to the end consumer. And also in fisheries, you have a fisheries assessment certification, and you have a chain of custody certification. And I think this delimitation, uh, or, or keeping in mind these five uh, key features of certification is important, because many scholars of transnational governance system tends to conflate the new type of certification programs and a wide range of other governance experiments, ignoring the unique features of certification programs. Let me just show you uh, this. Can you read this? No. <laughs> okay. This is a list of, of, of uh, certification programs which all share these five uh, features that I just mentioned. Uh, I can, the, 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 on top is the Forest Stewardship Council, then you have the Rainforest Alliance certification, which certified, for example, tea plantations. You have maybe seen the green frog on Lipton tea, uh, Rainforest Alliance certified. Uh, here's the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, which is an industry-dominated competitor to FSC. The Marine Stewardship Council, Social Accountability International, Fair Trade Labeling Organizations International, the Marine Aquarium Council, the Program for the Endorsement of Forest Certification, Fair Labor Association, and so on. So these are all full-fledged certification programs. By contrast, there's a number of voluntary codes of conduct, sustainability reporting schemes, and corporate social responsibility initiatives that do not qualify as such programs. The Global Reporting Initiative, for example, do not certify practices. Uh, another example is the Carbon Disclosure Initiative, which, do not, uh, which does not certify uh, producers. And also the UN Global Compact Program is a set of uh, 10 universal principles in the area of environment, human rights, anti-corruption, and labor, which is not monitored, verified, or enforced. I would just uh, briefly mention how, uh, how these certification programs uh, spread across sectors and, and what the important actors are for the proliferation of certification programs. Uh, some certification initiatives had largely independent roots. For example, labor standards, which you will hear about later in this series, and forestry standards emerged roughly at the same time, but those working on the respective schemes had little knowledge of what was happening in the other sector. 
In other cases, a few policy entrepreneurs played a critical role in spreading the certification ID across sectors and industries. A first uh, carrier of the organizational of the certification model was uh, environmental NGOs. I mentioned that uh, the WWF have, has played a critical role in spreading certification uh, across sectors. Another NGO is uh, the Rainforest Alliance. Uh, and also Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and so on has, have been uh, important in the sense that they have pushed, often pushed producers to certify. So they have also been part of this broader movement, a certification movement. A second type of carrier comprises the certifiers that assess compliance with standards. Uh, an entire industry of certifiers, consultants and auditors has emerged around certification programs. Of course, some of these players have been around for a long, long time, well before the advent of social and environmental certification programs. But the new wave of certification initiatives has presented them with new business opportunities. Certification bodies like SDS have a long hi history of auditing technical standards and are operating commercially to make a profit. Established in 1878 to offer agricultural inspection services to European grain traders, SDS became one of the first certifiers to be accredited by the Forest Stewardship Council. And a third group of carriers comprised the philanthropic foundations that provide financial support to certification schemes. The emergence of forest certification was significant because it provided them with a project they could jointly support and demonstrated that certification was a potential solution to a range of environmental and social problems. Tim Bartley, who, who will present later in this seminar series, uh, has described the critical role of U.S. philanthropic foundations in the emergence of forest certification. Some of the foundations that founded the FSC became supporters of the MSC, while other foundations learned from witnessing the success of forest certification and decided to support the emerging fisheries certification program. In particular, the Packard Foundation was vital in supporting the MSC's transformation from a WWF Unilever partnership to a fully independent multi-stakeholder certification program. I would like to also briefly review uh, what the literature says about how these certification programs gain rulemaking authority. Uh, because certification, participation in certification programs uh, are voluntary, they need to convince rele relevant audiences that they are legitimate and worthy of support. According to Claire Cutler and colleagues, three features of private authority render their rulemaking authority distinct. First, those subject to the rules being made by private actors must accept the rules as legitimate. Second, there must be a high degree of compliance with rules and decisions being made by private actors. And third, private sector actors must be empowered either explicitly or implicitly by governments and international organizations granting them the right to make decisions for others. This latter assumption has been questioned by Benjamin Kashore and others who argues that it is precisely the lack of government delegation of rulemaking authority that is one of the defining features of market-based certification programs or what he calls non-state market-driven governance. According to Koshor, there are 
four characteristics of non-state market-driven governance. First, the state does not require direct compliance with rules. Second, the state does not control standard-setting processes. Third, the market supply chain provides initiatives for support and adoption of standards. And fourth, compliance is verif verified in third-party audits. So a key observation by Koshor is that although states may influence non-state governance systems, they do not use their sovereign authority to require compliance with rules. According to Koshor, the logic of market-driven support means that authority granted to non-state market-driven governance schemes emanates from the market supply chain. Producers and consumers along the supply chain make their own evaluations about whether or not to grant authority to these schemes. So compliance initiatives is created up and down supply chains. And the goal of certification programs is to reconfigure markets. Unlike business coordination standards, these governance systems seek to create incentives for producers to address problems that they otherwise would have little incentive to address. And this leads, to, leads me to this uh, important distinction, I think, between coordination and performance standards. Uh, business coordination standards uh, are, in a sense, easier to get firms to adopt than performance-based standards. Because all companies could benefit from adopting coordination standards. Once established, companies could ha would have no incentive for cheating. Examples of coordination standards are, for example, the shape and size of nuts and bolts, uh, the size of paper, I, I mean uh, American letter size or A4 uh, format, international aviation standards created by the International Civil Aviation Organization, and also the uh, use of sea lanes created by the International Maritime Organization. There might, of course, be winners and losers when one tries to decide where and how to coordinate behavior. But uh, once established, most or all companies would benefit from uh, following uh, the rules that they have agreed to. So in this sense, penalizing non-compliance is in principle not necessary. And in that sense, a certification scheme is not, not necessary. Uh, by contrast, performance-based standards require companies to undertake costly behavioral change. And because of this, monitoring and penalizing non-compliance becomes important. Schemes with performance-based standards must create incentives for companies to address problems that they would otherwise have little incentive to address. So how can we determine or think about the effectiveness of certification programs? So. Uh, from the governance perspective adopted in many studies, the effectiveness of certification schemes is in part a matter of its influence on the management and use of natural resources. As a point of departure, an institution of environmental governance can be considered effective. It dissolves or ameliorates the problems that motivated its establishment. Fisheries certification, for example, can be considered to the, effect, to the extent that it helps to arrest the decline of fish stocks. But what actually consists or constitutes the object to be evaluated? 
This may at first glance appear a trivial question. The object clearly must be the certification program. But a second look reveals that identifying the object to be evaluated may not be this simple. A distinction is often made between the output, the outcome, and the impact of an institution formation process. Output refers to the principles, norms, and rules constituting the certification program itself, for example, the certification standards. Outcome refers to the behavioral consequences of the certification program, for example, changes in management practices. And impact refers in this context to the biophysical impact of the certification process, that is, changes, changes in the biophysical environment. Because it may take many years, even decades, to observe the biological impact of environmental institutions, the ambition in effectiveness studies is often to determine the outcomes or behavioral consequences of certification. For example, rather than studying the bio biological impact of forest certification, researchers typically focus on changes in on-the-ground management practices. So the next question is, against which standard is the certification program to be evaluated? Studies of the effectiveness of international environmental regimes typically focus on two points of reference. One is goal attainment and the other is relative improvements. Goal attainment refers to progress in meeting the objectives of certification program. It is important to keep in mind that goal attainment could be influenced by changes in public rules and regulations, as well as a number of other variables such as economic, technological, and political factors. Determination of goal attainment therefore requires controlling for a number of factors that may influence producer practices. Also, goal attainment can be a fungible target depending on what one uses as the organization's goals. In the case of certification schemes, goals can be refined during the specification of standards at the national level. This is, this is especially the case where different groups seek to use certification for different ends. Some programs also have weaker standards than other programs. Consequently, they may have a high de degree of goal attainment and yet contribute little or almost nothing to sol solving environmental problems. So goal attainment sometimes tells us little about attention to the problems certification schemes were established to address. Another option for measuring effectiveness is to determine the relative improvements caused by the institution at hand. In the context of certification, this approach to assessing effectiveness could be further specified as the degree to which a certification scheme modifies harmful producer practices. The so-called counterfactual situation is here our baseline, a hypothetical state of affairs without a certification program. To determine this situation, we must ask the questions, would certified producers behave differently in the absence of a certification program? Of course, this is a very, very difficult question to answer, but a pragmatic interpretation of the counterfactual no certification situation is compliance with legal requirements. One indication of effectiveness is consequently the degree to which certified producers implement environmental measures beyond compliance with legal requirements, and this is possible to investigate empirically. 
a much used strategy is to investigate corrective action requirements issued by certifiers. A corrective action requirement identifies changes a producer must address before being certified, which is called a precondition, or quickly after being certified, which is called a condition. Of course, these are less than perfect measures of causality, because changes in management practices can also result from new knowledge, new harvesting technologies, economic or public policy changes, and so on. So the analyst therefore needs to be sensitive to rival explanation for changes in management procedures and on-the-ground practices. And with regard to effectiveness, I would also mention another challenge on the implementation side. There is also the challenge of accounting for self-selection in certification programs. In the same way as stakes, states make choices of whether to sign and ratify international agreements, producers select into certification schemes. Accordingly, there's a threat that only producers who face minor compliance costs will participate in certification, certification programs on a voluntary basis. Well, there is one more distinction I would like to make, and that is a distinction between the direct effects of the institution itself and the broader consequences flowing from institution formation efforts. Causal analysis of effectiveness should also examine unintended consequences and negative effects of institutions for environmental governance. Certification programs, for example, may have consequences not intended or not planned by those who develop these tools. One example is the favoring of large-scale over small-scale operations because of the benefits of economies of scale. Another example is the favoring of developed country producers over developing country producers because of variation in capacity to implement certification requirements. And these examples illustrate the selection challenges I just mentioned. So, how can we explain variation in the effectiveness of programs? The effectiveness of certification programs could be assumed to be, to be related to the type of problem they address and program design. First, some problems are easier to resolve than others, a kind of straightforward observation. Consider the problems of ozone depletion and climate change. Ozone depletion is a relatively easy program to resolve. Substances that deplete the ozone layer can quite easily be substituted with alternatives. By contrast, greenhouse gas emissions come from all sectors of society and are much more difficult to reduce and to find alternatives, as we all know. So variation in problem, problem type can thus be expected to explain some of the variation in the, in the effectiveness of certification programs. For example, we may expect that it is easier to promote sustainable forest management through certification than it is to arrest overfishing. Forest auditing is relatively uncomplicated because auditors can usually observe the direct effects of forestry operations in underground inspections. Assessment of fisheries, on the other hand, is more difficult due to the nature of fish resources. There are often multiple access rights to shared fish resources, and many fish stocks are straddling and highly migratory. The absence of easily observable effects of non-compliance and the non-selective nature of many fisheries fishing techniques complicate the assessment process. 
So characteristics of the fish resource make it difficult, therefore, to set standards that would lead to environmental improvements. In addition to variation in problem type, we can expect that variation in program, program design can explain some of the variation in problem-solving effectiveness. Among the problem features that can be expected to influence effectiveness, I will review two that are believed to be particularly important. One is the stringency of the standards, and the other is the system operation. How much time do I have? No, about 10 minutes. 10 minutes, fine. Okay, a plausible assumption is that the more stringent the environmental standards, the greater effect they will have on producer practices and the greater the problem-solving effectiveness of the program. On the other hand, research has shown that stringent standards could also have negative effects on the overall effectiveness of certification programs. First, there could be an inverse relationship between stringency and the adoption of standards by producers. Unless the adoption of stringent standards is rewarded in the marketplace, we may expect that the more stringent the standards, the less likely it is that producers will adopt standards on a voluntary basis. More specifically, and more interesting, I think, we can expect that only environmental frontrunners, which could adopt standards at a relatively low cost, cost and, and get a market advantage, would find it attractive to participate in a program with stringent standards. And if only the environmental frontrunners certify, the net effects of certification would be low, and you will not have any change of producer practices among the producers that you really, really would like to change practices because they are harmful to the environment. Second, there could also be an inverse relationship between the stringency of standards and compliance, simply because producers do not necessarily have the capacity to implement and comply with highly demanding standards. I mean, the more stringent the standards, the, the, the greater the gap between standards and compliance might be. And third, it is critical to recognize that standards are not neutral. First movers who create the rules can tailor them to match their technical and operational capacities, resulting in higher switching costs for late movers. Standards secure advantages for certain producers and disadvantages, disadvantages for others, and stringent standards may be tailored to enhance the competitive advantage of first movers. And there are several uh, authors or scholars that have demonstrated that this is in fact happening. So standards are never, uh, it's, it's never only a technical uh, exercise to set standards, it's also a political exercise. To summarize then, we should not expect to find a simple relationship with, between stringency and effectiveness. Empirical analysis needs to determine when and under what conditions stringent standards are likely to result in desired environmental outcomes. Turning now to system operation and auditing, there are two main types of environmental certification standards or programs. One is performance-based, focusing on outcome, and one is management system-based, focusing on process. When performance-based standards are assessed, on-the-ground practices are inspected. 
To gain certification with performance-based standards, a forest owner, for example, may have to protect old-growth old forests and key habitats and limit clear-cuts. By contrast, management system-based standards do not dictate compliance with any specific performance level before issuing a certificate, but they do require that continual process improvements be, de be de demonstrated in audits. For example, a certifier may inspect whether an organization has implemented adequate management plans, internal monitoring systems, and reporting procedures. System-based standards have been criticized because they can, in principle, be verified without an inspection of on-the-ground practices. Moreover, an organization can, to some extent, decide itself the environmental performance level it aims for. It can also be certified before it reaches that performance level, as long as it demonstrates process improvements from one assessment to the next. The most well-known standard of this type is the ISO 14001 Environmental Manage Management System Standard, I mean, issued by the International Organization for Standardization. Uh, this standard was launched in 1996 and has become widely adopted by companies of all types and sizes. And it, it, it is also used in forestry, for example, and sometimes in combination with FSC certification. But it, it can be used by any company, really. Because it, this is a gen, generic, uh, generic environmental management system. But most sustainability certification programs, which are addressed in this lecture series, have a mix of performance-based and system-based standards. But there is still significant variation among programs in the emphasis they place on performance-based and system-based elements. The FSC has a strong performance-based element, for example, while industry-dominated FSC competitors in forestry generally place greater weight on system-based elements, although they also include performance-based elements. And the fisheries certification scheme, MSC, also has a mix of performance-based and system-based elements. For example, the MSC allows certification with conditions, which means that the fishery may be certified before a certain performance level is reached, but has to demonstrate that corrective action has been taken in the next audit. So, The rest of my presentation is about a, a practical example of how you can assess the effectiveness of certification. I don't know really if time allows if to, to go into this. Uh, maybe just a few comments on that case. Uh, okay, Pro producer participation is, uh, is the most regularly used proxy for the impact of certification. As I mentioned, we must consider patterns of participation since producers self-select into certification programs. And there is a risk that, that certification or, or, or participation in schemes is systematically skewed in favor of some producers. Yeah, you can probably not read this figure, but this comes from collaborative work with Graham Old and Connie McDermott. Um, and this figure shows you FSC certified area in million hectares and as percentage of a, to a country's total forest area. And, um, well, uh, you see, this one here is Canada, which has certified the most. Uh, 
The next one, I cannot read this myself on <laughs> from here. So, but this is uh, this is Russia, this is Sweden, and this is uh, let's see, this is the, the United States. So, what you see that the countries that has certified the greatest, the biggest area uh, in the FSC are countries in North America and Europe. It is not tropical countries. And also, if you look at Canada, it has certified many millions of hectares of forests, but only about 6-7% of its total forested areas. This was in 2008, so it, it has probably increased somewhat, but it's still very low percentage of the total. And that also means that the impact of forest certification might not be as, as uh, large as we would want it to be. The next, uh, this is perhaps a bit easier to read. This is the, the global competitor to the FSC, which is the program for the endorsement of forest certification. Uh, again, you see that, uh, if you see this, this is Canada. Canada secures the top spot uh, and comprises about 40% of all the PEFC certified forest land. And uh, you see up here, I can point with this, this one is uh, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, which is uh, in the US, United States and Canada, coming, coming second. So again, you see that the countries that uh, dominate are in Europe and North America. And in fact, almost all the countries on this list are found in Europe or North America. So this just illustrates that you don't you have to, in addition to looking at figures such as the total area certified, you have to consider patterns of adoption. Okay. Um, okay. I'll, I'll just quickly move to to, the, to conclusions. Uh, studies of effectiveness have to consider, as I mentioned, not only area certified, but also the patterns of participation certification requirements, the stringency and the scope of standards, uh, the degree of compliance with standards, uh, the effects of underground auditing, which can be measured, for example, by looking at corrective action requirements and whether producers take action to implement uh, corrective action requirements. And also, as I argued, the broader consequences of certification and interaction with other policy instruments, such as public policy instruments. Finally, and very quickly, just a few research challenges. Uh, well, as I just mentioned, I think it's important to study the interaction between public and private regulations. How do we control for the effect of effects of public regulations and other factors that influence resource management? And secondly, how can we explain variation in problem-solving effectiveness among certification programs? To do this, it is, we, we must examine uh, the explanatory power of program design, market and product characteristics, and political and regulatory context. So in conclusion, we need both extensive comparative studies of certification programs and in-depth studies of the effects of certification. Okay, thank you. Thank you.